Tonight's reading is from Titus chapter 1, from verse 10. Titus chapter 1, from verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you to, to Willie and to all those who have taken part in the service so far. My name is Johnny, if we haven't met before. Uh, I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here. And it's uh, really good to see you all. Uh, uh, good to be able to gather together this evening. If you are a bit newer around uh, church, please uh, don't leave without saying hello to someone. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. And um, thank you very much to Joanna for, for reading for us from Titus chapter 1. Um, it'd be helpful to me and to you, I think, to have that open over the course of the next few minutes um, as I speak. And, and the reason for that will be hopefully particularly clear uh, this evening of all evenings, given the subject matter of Titus chapter 1. But before we spend some time thinking about that together, uh, let me pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray together. Uh, the psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We ask this evening, Lord, that as we study your word together, we would each know the truth of that, that you would please guide our feet and light our paths as individuals and as a church family as we hear you speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, then... Um, you may or may not be aware that 2024 is a year of uh, leadership elections. Uh, I say you may or may not be aware. I think you'd probably have to have been avoiding all news media to have missed the wheels beginning to turn on the UK election process that will be happening uh, later on this year. And it isn't just in the UK. It's a, a global year of elections. I mentioned this during our church family prayer meeting a couple of weeks ago, uh, that over the, the coming calendar year, there are going to be governmental elections in India, uh, the US, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Russia, Mexico, Iran, South Africa, South Korea, Ukraine, Mozambique, Taiwan, North Korea, Senegal, Cambodia, and I'm barely scratching the surface. And a lot will be revealed by those elections, you would suspect, people's priorities for their country and for their own living experiences, chief among them. But alongside, uh, alongside the policies that people prioritize, Elections like those also tend to reveal what kinds of qualities people look for in a leader. What kind of leader will they choose for their country? I'm guessing that quite high on, on the list of qualities in at least a few of the elections this year will be charisma. People are looking for an inspirational figure. 
Someone who can motivate other people to get on board with their agenda. Another factor might be how how gifted or how clever they are. You have to imagine there are lots of plates to keep spinning when you're the leader of a nation state. So you don't really want to be appointing someone who struggles to add two and two together. How about success, though? Very often a presidential candidate or a candidate to be prime minister points to their successes, perhaps in a previous job or even a previous career outside of politics to prove that they're a safe pair of hands. We tend to look for quite a lot of different qualities in our leaders, it transpires. Let me just change tack for a brief moment and ask, what about church leaders? What kinds of characteristics do you think are important in the leader of a local church? My guess is that quite a number of us would instinctively gravitate towards similar characteristics to the ones I've just listed for political leaders. So charisma, the kind of person who can galvanize a group of people behind them and behind the church's mission. Intellectual ability, perhaps, someone who's clever and immensely able, perhaps. Or success, someone who's achieved a lot in their work life. If they've made it to the top of the ladder in their own profession, goes the logic, they're surely a safe pair of hands to be an elder or a ministry leader. Well, Paul would say, will say, in fact, in Titus chapter 1, not necessarily. You see, the kinds of leaders we ought to look for, ought to appoint in a local church, is the key idea in Titus chapter 1. We've already seen in our studies in this short letter that Titus was based in Crete, one of the Greek islands. Crete was, at the time, a place where there were very, very few Christians. It was frontier territory, if you like, for the good news of Jesus. And so Titus was tasked by Paul with establishing churches in the towns across the island. And we saw last week that Paul's strategy for doing that was to appoint leaders. Just notice that with me. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says to Timothy, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If you're going to make progress in Crete, says Paul, well, you need the right kind of people to lead things. And so we therefore tackled the question we tackled last week, what should those leaders be like? How does Titus help to, how is Titus to identify a good church leader? Do you look for the most charismatic member of your church family? Or the cleverest? Or the most successful in their own personal or professional life? No, says Paul. First and foremost, your leaders ought to be godly. People who are, chapter 1, verse 6, above reproach in their character. That doesn't mean that they're perfect. Only one person who ever lived has been perfect. His name is Jesus. So they're not to be perfect, but their lives ought not undermine or scandalize the message that they've come to teach. And that brings us to the second qualification, chapter 1, verse 9. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
A Christian leader ought to instruct in sound doctrine, ought to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, they ought to be able to teach the Bible. And that is a bit of a surprise, I think. That the two characteristics Paul identifies as being non-negotiables in Christian leaders aren't charisma, or intellectual intelligence, or professional success, but firstly, personal godliness, and secondly, the ability to teach the Bible. And again, that surprise might well leave us asking the same question again. Why? Why are those the non-negotiables? And an answer to that question comes this evening's passage. Because you see, when it comes to appointing leaders, giftedness to teach the Bible and personal godliness really matter because when you don't prioritize those qualities, well, the alternative will fill the gap. People who teach falsehood and people who are ungodly. And following that kind of person as your leader, well, that can be catastrophic. Let's think about that under our first heading this evening, if it's possible to have those behind me. Sefan, that'd be super. Next slide, please. Thank you very much. That's great. Uh, Godly truth teachers guard against deceivers. Now, I wonder how it makes you feel um, as I use a phrase like deceivers to describe uh, teachers or, or, or false teaching even as a phrase. I wonder how that makes you feel. I guess is that some of us will feel a bit uncomfortable when you hear that kind of phrase being used because it sounds quite prickly and quite narrow and because Christians should be much more open-hearted and open-minded than that. Christians should welcome people who say different things. A church shouldn't be a place where people are called out about what they say we might think. And it might even sound a bit presumptuous for someone like me to talk about false teachers and deceptive teachers, because for there to be false teachers, the inference is there also have to be true ones. And who am I to judge which is which? And I know a lot of people find that to be quite a persuasive idea. If you're among them, I can understand absolutely why you might be. But the problem is that the Bible doesn't have any such scruples about calling out false teaching. It is very clear, and repeatedly so, that there will be people who look like Christian teachers, but whose teachings are actually dangerous. Jesus himself warned people about it during his own ministry. It was this very problem, the problem of false teaching, that gives us the phrase, wolves in sheep's clothing. False teachers might look just like you, other sheep, said Jesus, but they're actually really dangerous. It's a consistent idea through all of the New Testament, and so it shouldn't really surprise us that even as Paul's looking to establish brand new churches in Crete, he needs to highlight this very same issue. Notice that with me, chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. You see, even in this fledgling church environment like Crete, well, there are people teaching false things about God. And notice, it's not just the occasional one or two rogue teachers, says Paul. There are many, he says. 
Now, it seems that the false teachers in Crete were Christians, uh, to be clear. Notice that in verse 13, Paul says that the end goal of addressing their teaching, or rather of silencing their teaching, is that they might be sound in the faith. So they presumably have some kind of faith in the first instance. And we'll come back in a moment or two to, to think about how we might spot false teaching. But in the first instance, it is worth making sure we acknowledge its existence as a category. Because we kind have a tendency in our culture, I think, to, to, to want to downplay it or to want to ignore it altogether, actually. Truth and falsehood is often one of a number of factors we take into account when we think about whether or not to listen to a particular kind of Christian teaching. So when reading a, a book you think might be a bit dodgy in terms of its theology, for example, or you're, you're watching the live stream from another church even or a worship service, for example, whether it's true or not, it's hopefully one factor you'll consider. But another factor is, is, is whether the book or whether the talk is entertaining, or whether it's moving, or whether it's inspiring. And if it is entertaining or moving or inspiring, well, then we might just hear the teacher out and what they have to say. It can't be that bad after all, can it? Well, Paul wants Titus to see how important an issue this really is. And not only that, because it is an important issue, he wants Titus to make sure that he guards against it, he protects against it. And that is why he's so concerned that Titus appoints good leaders. I wonder if you can see or follow that connection. Remember what he said about the right kind of leaders last week? To be an elder in a local church, someone must, verse 9, he said, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He has to believe the right thing, and not just for its own sake or as an intellectual exercise, but, verse 9, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, the kinds of elders Titus is to appoint ought to be able to spot truth from error, to correct the empty talkers, or the deceivers of verse 10. But that was the case in first century Crete, and it does remain the case today. There are things which are taught by people who look like Christian teachers, things that will have been said of God in our country and even in our city today, which are just not true. And that teaching, it's important to say, that teaching is worse than useless. It is deceptive. And it is dangerous. Now that might sound like a very strong thing to say. I'm no stronger than Paul is to Titus. And when that kind of deception happens inside a local church... It's part of an elder of that church's job to address it, to correct it. And it is important, I think, for you to know that I'm not trying to stand above that myself. Very practically, it is the elder's role here in Hebron, if they hear me teaching something, or Willie, or Derek, or Kevin teaching something on a Sunday that's out of kilter with the Bible, it's their job to call us out on it. That's why it really matters that all elders are godly and are able to teach in order that falsehoods might be stopped from creeping in under the radar. And while that responsibility primarily rests with, with, with elders in, in the Titus 1 sense, 
Well, the principle does have implications for all of us, I think. See, Aberdeen's quite a, a transient context. People move to the city to study and work for a while, then might move somewhere else to work or study elsewhere for a while, then sometimes move back and away and back and away. That's the rhythm of things in, in Aberdeen, at least for some folks. Some of you have been here since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, I know. But it is quite transient for some of us. And that means that even if you've made Hebron your church home, well, it is quite possible that for at least some of us in this room this evening, you'll end up moving at some point. Some won't, but some will. And if you do, if you end up moving and you need to look for another church to go to, well, Titus chapter 1 should be right at the top of your reading list. Not just what the the music is like on a Sunday, or whether there there are lots of people your age there, or whether it feels lively and active, but as you're thinking about joining or associating yourself or becoming a member of a local church, ask yourself is the truth taught here is it taken really seriously and if it isn't then no matter how good the singing no matter how much the buzz of people milling around on a sunday i'm going to be blunt with you do not settle there if the truth isn't taught Godly teaching elders ought to guard against deceptive teaching, says Paul to Titus. Elders need to know that, but so do all of us. Now, it's one thing to be persuaded that false teaching is a thing, and I hope if we weren't before, then we are starting to edge that way now. But how do you go about spotting it? See, I've said this before, actually, at Hebron. Not all theological differences can be tagged as false teaching. We've got partner churches in this city who've got different views on various issues, for example. And we don't go about decrying each of those partner churches as being full of false teachers at all. We're we're very supportive of churches who might teach slightly different things. So how are we to tell whether one issue is a problematic one versus one that's not? How, How are elders or leaders of a church meant to spot false teaching? Well, there are a number of different criteria for that throughout the Bible, actually, but there are a couple of features of the false teaching that was troubling Crete that will be helpful for us to spot, I think. And the first of which is that you can spot false teachers by their posture. I just want to ask you a a, a question. Whose church is Hebron? And by church, I'm not talking about this room we're in or the building we're in. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle. Who does the totality of a local church like Hebron belong to? One answer might be that the church belongs to all of us who are members or regular attenders here. We are the church, so therefore, in a sense, we own the church. That's one possible answer. I had another possible answer not long ago. I was talking with someone about a particularly influential church in London called All Souls Langham Place. One of its very well-known ministers in the 20th century was a man called John Stott, who died a few years ago now. But he was very influential, continues through his books and writings to be very influential through his ministry. And during our chat about All Souls, the person I was speaking to referred to that church family as being John Stott's church. And I took him to mean that that was the church in which John Stott used to preach, or of which he was the pastor. But as it transpired, what he really meant was that that was the church that belonged to John Stott. That was really what he was meaning. John Stott was the one who grew it from the ground up to being a very influential congregation. 
And again, that might be the impression some of us have about a local church, that uh, the leaders of the church are effectively the ones who own it. They're like key shareholders, if you like. But let me just say that neither of those perceptions is the shape of things in the Bible. That there is one owner of Hebron. One owner of all souls, of every local church for that matter. And we can read that by inference in chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says that an overseer or an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. An overseer or an elder, says Paul, is a steward. Not the owner, but a steward. A steward of the one who ultimately owns the church, who ultimately calls the shots in a local church. That owner being God himself. The Hebron church family, we belong to God. And that isn't just a ceremonial role. God doesn't just rule his church as a sort of figurehead. He rules his church very practically, day by day, week by week, by his word. God's words, God's truth in the driving seat. Now that might sound like a bit of a digression from the rest of Titus chapter 1. What does that have to do with false teachers or false teaching? Well, it has an awful lot to do with false teaching, actually, because a key feature of being a good leader, the right kind of leader, if you like, in a local church, is recognizing that that local church is not yours. It is God's, and that you're just a steward. And the opposite of that posture was true of the false teachers in Titus's day. See, the false teacher's problem wasn't just that they'd made some theological mistakes and, and, and reached the wrong conclusions about things. I mean, they had done. We'll see that in a minute or two. The problem was more fundamental than that, though. Their problem was a problem of posture. Posture towards God and his word. Notice that with me. Paul says that these false teachers were, chapter 1, verse 10, insubordinate. Sounds like a strange word to use, doesn't it? But what he means is that they were insubordinate to God and to his words. Thought that they somehow stood over those words rather than under its authority. Or again, we read on verse 16, they were disobedient. Again, that might sound like a slightly strange word for Paul to be using there. But what he's saying is they were unwilling to obey what God taught. Now, it's worth saying that it might not have looked much like that. And that's part of the problem, actually. False teaching is often so deceptive because even though it's insubordinate to God, well, it might look or sound quite religious, quite spiritual even. We're given hints of that through this little unit, in fact. Just notice that the false teachers, verse 13, devoted themselves to Jewish myths. They were talking about spiritual-sounding things. Verse 16, they professed to know God. Perhaps the clearest sign of quite how religious they are is that they're part, verse 10, of the circumcision party. That's a party as in like a political party, if you like. They're a, a grouping. And the circumcision party were called that because they were people who insisted that in order to be sure that you're right with God, well, you really need a, a, a belt and braces approach. Yes, Jesus was good. Yes, the cross was important. But to really be sure you've pleased him, you still need to keep the Jewish laws and regulations to eat the right thing, avoid eating pork, to be circumcised. 
Now, none of that might sound especially attractive to us, might not be the kind of teaching you'd be queuing up to listen to. I was thinking about it this week, though, and actually, you, you can see why it might have been quite a persuasive idea when it was first taught. Just imagine for a moment that you're a new Christian, okay, and you're living in first century Crete, where it's much, much sunnier than it is here. You've not long become a Christian, and you're clear in your mind that you are right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's what Paul came and taught when you first heard him or heard about him or through other people. It's what Titus has been teaching in the church meeting in the next town over from you. The problem is, though, it doesn't always feel like that. Because you still stumble, you still sin. And, and, and the cross is good, but it doesn't always seem as though it's going to be strong enough or tangible enough to deal with that sin. And so you see, when a teacher stands up in the church in your town and tells you that there is a way to be sure God's happy with you, and it only involves keeping a couple of food laws, carrying out some Jewish rituals, well, you're all ears. There is something attractive about doing stuff to make sure that God will accept you. And yet, even as that teaching gains a hearing, it is deception. We need nothing more than the cross of Jesus Christ to be made right with God. Now, what does any of that have to do with us? Moving from the warmth and sunshine of first century Crete, I'm going to bring you crashing back into uh, 21st century uh, January Aberdeen. There are quite a number of implications for us, actually. One key implication for anyone in in eldership or who teaches the Bible in any context, not least here in Hebron, one really helpful question to ask ourselves, I think, is do we see ourselves as being subordinate to God and to his words? And to both of those is really important. We might think of ourselves as being subordinate to God, but we're happy playing fast and loose with his words. Or instead, do we see the Bible as being a sort of helpful guide, but something we can kind of hold to lightly? You see, seeing yourself as a steward of of what is ultimately God's, this church family, it ultimately changes your posture when it comes to the Bible. Because the church belongs to God, and so he needs to be in the driving seat. Not you, not me. Now, obviously, we work hard to teach the Bible in accessible ways and to communicate it clearly. But as we do that, well, we are so, so, well, it's just very, very important we keep the main thing the main thing. And if you aren't a Bible teacher, again, this does have implications for for all of us, really, whether because we're moving to a new city and a new church or because we're working out what kind of Christian media to listen to. When you latch on to a new podcast, when you subscribe to a Christian blog, or when you pitch up on a new church for the first time, ask yourself, is this tracking with the Bible? Is the person who's teaching me here submitting themselves to the scriptures? Or is this just spiritual sounding, but ultimately empty? So in general terms, then, the the, the posture of the deceptive teaching in Crete is teaching that holds God's authority and the authority of his words lightly. But at the same time, 
is actually quite religious. But there is another hallmark of this deceptive teaching. Uh, The consequences of this kind of teaching that that holds God's words lightly but actually looks very religious is that, well, the fruit is rotten. And that's our final point this evening. There are a few things, I think, that will grind people's gears quite like religious hypocrisy. You might have seen just this past week, for example, in, in, in lots of mainstream media in the UK, that a Colorado pastor and his wife were charged with a fraud. Um, hundreds of local Christians in Colorado were, were caught up in a multi-million dollar cryptocurrency scheme. And any kind of alleged fraud like that is, is bad enough, but somehow it's exacerbated when it's done by someone who's, who's meant to be above reproach who's meant to be religious, if you like. And there is nothing new under the sun. You see, in one sense, the false teachers in Crete were teaching a very religious-sounding version of the Christian faith. But at the same time as being quite religious, well, the false teachers in Crete, it seems, were also deeply immoral. And to make that point... Paul quotes one of the Cretans' own prophets. Just read that with me, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's hardly going to go on the Crete tourist board's leaflets for the coming year, you would think. It's a pretty strong thing to say about an entire population of an island. The real shock, though, is that he isn't just saying it about the entire island. He's saying it about the false teachers. Follow the logic with me. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them, that is the false teachers, sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Or in other words, this poet says that Cretans are a bad lot, they're lazy, they're evil, they're gluttonous. And the false teachers, well, they're just like them. They're no different. Paul makes the same point again in verse 16, if we aren't quite convinced by the flow of thought. In verses 12 and 13, verse 16 says, The false teachers profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So they're teaching other people to be very religious, remember? They're they're teaching them to follow all kinds of Jewish rituals and practices to, to be part of the circumcision party. And at the same time, they're living really worldly lives. It's a hollow religion. And that isn't just a problem for the teachers themselves, although it obviously is a problem that they're living as hypocrites. It's also a problem for the people who are living, who are listening to them, rather, Verse 11, the false teachers must be silent, says Paul. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, when we read that they're upsetting whole families, the idea there isn't that they're making those families sad. Think rather of the the, the sort of image of upsetting an apple cart. Okay, when you upset an apple cart, it isn't that you make a cart sad, it's that you topple it over. And that's what this teaching is doing to families, to other Christians. It's toppling them over. It's making them behave more religiously, perhaps, 
far more uptight about what they eat and about what they do in one sense, but living far less obediently in the day-by-day stuff of normal life. And in one sense, that combination of, of religiousness and immorality, it might sound like quite awkward bedfellows, but actually they definitely are bedfellows. Think of the church leader who takes the order of Sunday worship very, very seriously indeed, who's meticulous in making sure he takes communion every Sunday, for whom religious practice is very, very important, but whose family life is an absolute disaster, who treats his wife like dirt, whose children completely disrespect him. Those two things, uncomfortable bedfellows, yes, but they are bedfellows nonetheless. Let me give you one real-life example, actually. I think of an old man I once met who had been an elder in his local church over many, many years. He found out that I was in training to be a pastor, and he wanted to talk to me about a minister of another church whom he used to know. That minister had had to step out of ministry as a result of a moral failure. He'd been found guilty of defrauding people out of money. And as we spoke, it became clear that the old man I was speaking to He was far more concerned by the fact that that minister didn't used to wear a dog collar when he preached than with the fact that he'd been found guilty of fraud. And I'm not exaggerating that. He was far, far more concerned with how he looked than with his lifestyle. I decided that wasn't the moment for me to tell him I wasn't planning on wearing a dog collar either. But it did seem bizarre to place the emphasis there. That even having been an elder in a church family over many years, as this man had been, someone responsible for teaching truth, for calling out falsehood, well, religious appearance was more important in his eyes than personal godliness. And that just is not how things should be for anyone, says Paul, much less the leaders of God's church. Now, as we draw towards a a close this evening, I I did take Willie's prompt that there's no clock running, so I I could keep going for another half hour and you'd never know, but I won't. I'll draw towards a close, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of implications for us perhaps to take away. Titus 1 ought to shape our expectation for Christian leaders, shouldn't it? We began thinking about our expectations for world leaders and how often that bleeds into our understanding of the local church. That should not be the case. As we look to identify and to train elders or ministry leaders in the future. As we look, for example, as a church family to appoint a pastor in training, Lord willing, over the course of the coming weeks and months. As you decide which church to settle in, if you've not settled in Hebron yet or if you move elsewhere. Are you looking in your leaders for charisma and for entertainment? Or are you looking for godliness, a love of the Lord Jesus in that godliness, and a faithfulness, therefore, to his words, the Bible. That latter photo fit, if you like, might appear far less attractive. Won't get any of the plaudits in the same way as the first. But it is infinitely more important. That's the first implication. How do, what do we expect? What do we look for in Christian leaders? And secondly and relatedly, Paul's charge to Titus 
Remember, this is part of, of his strategy for gospel advance in the world. Crete is frontier territory, if you like. And that means that what he says ought to make us think about how we might each play our part in God's global strategy. Paul doesn't think that the way to change the world for, for God, to, 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 to bring people to know the Lord Jesus, is to appoint the most impressive people to positions in the local church. Because if the most impressive people are in those positions, then everyone will want to come. You know, it's to identify and to train and to appoint faithful, godly Bible teachers right across a church family. Both elders, yes, but also right across a church family through all of our ministries, people who will teach the truth about Jesus, who are equipped to spot falsehoods and to correct those where necessary. This is not our church in one sense. It is ultimately God's church. And it's our job to be faithful as we listen to him and steward it under him. Let me lead us in prayer and ask him for his help to do that. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the God who has revealed yourself to us through the scriptures, the writings of the prophets and the apostles. And we pray that you would please help each of us as we listen to people teaching those words in various different contexts. Help us, please, to be those who can discern what is true and what is false of you and to stick like glue to that which is true. Help us as a church family to be those who treasure truth, who long to, to see people come to know the genuine God of the Bible as they hear his word being taught week by week in various contexts around the church family. And for anyone here who's yet to place trust in you, we do pray that by your word you would please draw them to yourself through that word, even this evening. We thank you that your words are powerful, they are active, they are a double-edged sword. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would please be at work amongst and within each of us tonight. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.